either one of these any good? Wow, this is a good movie. It's pretty good. Yeah, well, the director from yesterday doesn't think so. It stinks. You sorry? You waste all our film. <laughs> it's so bad. Well, it turns out to be a good week to have only really two big movies to talk about yeah. because we're at the halfway point of the year, which is crazy. First of all, but we want to run down our top 10 of the year so far. That's right. And we will get to that before we head to the lobby. So much goodness coming up in the Screening Room podcast, and welcome to it. She is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And we are from MadWolf.com, and we're going to start out with one of the two biggies this week following the events of Avengers Endgame. Maybe you've heard of it. Spider-Man must step up to take on new threats in a world that has changed forever. It's Spider-Man Far From Home. You're a very difficult person to contact, Spider-Man. This is Mr. Beck. Who could have used someone like you on my world? New world? Beck is from Earth, just not ours. The snap to our hole in our dimension. You're saying there's a multiverse? We have a job to do, and you're coming with us. What do you want, Peter? I want to go back on my trip with the girl who I really like and tell her how I feel. MJ, I am Spider-Man. No, of course I'm not. I mean, it's kind of obvious. The world needs the next Iron Man. Are you going to step up or not? Well, the first good news about this movie is you've got the writers and the director all back from Spider-Man Homecoming, which we really enjoyed. Yes, very much. And I, you know, and I think the Marvel Cinematic Universe is a fun one to be a part of. But one of the things I really loved about Spider-Man in this iteration is the way that it, the film dialed back and really focused on on. Kids, yeah. like through the eyes of, of of teenagers, it gave it the very sort of wholesome, fun atmosphere. And I'm not saying that the other movies aren't fun. I'm just saying that it was a very different vibe and it was very welcome. Well, and what it did to me was gave it gave it its identity. Yeah, it was so much different than anything else. It, it was. gave it its identity because look, he's a teenager, right. right? Peter Parker, boy, and Tom Holland couldn't have been better. I mean, he was so the good. perfect choice. Perfect. So uh, honestly, I remember when Homecoming came out. There had been so many different, you know, reboots of Spider-Man. I thought, oh, okay. But I, I, I really, really liked it. And so it's good that you've got the same core of filmmakers involved in this one because while it keeps that same tone, it still has a little bit of an eye on growing up, which I liked because a little bit of time has passed now. So yeah. a little bit older, yes. just a little bit. Yeah. But this time, Peter Parker and Tom Holland, you mentioned he's perfect because he's, what, what is he, really, 23? Yeah, he's 23. But He's playing a 16-year-old, and it's it's totally he totally sells it. Yeah. Not only in his looks, he still looks quite young. But and it, his voice. His voice. But just his behavior. <laughs> yeah, his wide His energy eyed, and, yeah. yeah. Naivete and awkwardness, being around his crush, MJ, and mm-hmm. other just things, the awkwardness of a 16-year-old. So that is all still intact, which is great. But now he wants to, after the, ev- after the um, events... Of Endgame, he just wants to be a kid, you right? Because know? remember, he was one of the ones they call it blipped. The he blip, was one of the yeah. ones, so he turned into dust. Yeah, he came back. He saved the world. He feels like he deserves a vacation, and he <laughs> wants to take this summer trip with his classmates and MJ. Of course, you know Nick Fury says no. Right, he can't really escape the, the, being a, a superhero. But it is fun because the opening of the movie brings everybody up to date through the eyes of a high school of the yes. high school world. Oh everybody, my God. Everybody's just talking about the blip. Yeah. And how it did you blip? Wait, you're not 
you're, you're older. You came back older. You blipped. He yeah, didn't they, blip. Yeah, it was, yeah, it's like a school news broadcast yeah. <laughs> of these two teenagers yeah. who are complaining. And, uh, and it's, yeah, it's very clever yeah. and fun. And, and, and you're right. It sets the tone for the whole movie. It does. So he's over there with the class. But no, of course, Nick Fury follows him because there's, there's trouble afoot. And there aren't as many superheroes as there used to be. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm-hmm. So... Trouble is helped out by the appearance of a brand new superhero that the kids call Mysterio. And his name is Quentin Beck. And he's played by Jake Gyllenhaal. And what's great is after they deal with the first bit of uh, daring do and superhero action, they kind of get the, they start getting into the backstory of Quentin Beck, and he's from another earthly dimension, and that lets Peter Parker say, oh, you mean there really is a multiverse? A multiverse, Which is yeah. perfect, yep. because the last Spider-Man movie was actually the animated one, which was so it great. It was so great! Into the Spider-Verse. Oh my God, so it was so that's great. A, really, it's a big clue about how self-aware this movie wants to be. It's a great nod to a great movie, and if you haven't seen the Spider-Verse, please check it out. But early on for me, and I think for you too, the concentration on being self-aware almost topples the movie. It's so heavy with it well, throughout the first half. Not only that, though, um, the, the film is, 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 uh, is built on a sleight of hand that, that works incredibly well. But part of that, and we're not going to give anything away, kind of requires that the first half of the film be a little bit over the top. Mm-hmm. And so you're already kind of watching, and just a part of your brain is like, I don't know about this. Right. You know, but at the same time, yeah. You're also kind of swimming through these these very self-aware nods about being part of the uh, uh, of the MCU, about Iron Man being dead, which actually I thought they handled really well, and it, it answered a question that I had in uh, in the first one. All of these millions of different Spider-Man movies, the the whole sort of anxiety and guilt and darkness that is required to decide to become a, a, a Superman, excuse me, a superhero. It's rooted in having lost Uncle Ben. Mm-hmm. He dies. Spider-Man feels like it's his fault. And then this is what compels him to be. And, and that's been absent. And I kind of was curious about it. I was fine with it. Because you said, we've seen a lot of the Spider-Man origin story. So I was, I was glad that they skipped over that a little bit. But now, because Tony Stark is dead. Right. So Tony Stark slips into that role of like this, this his you know his personal hero who's no longer here, whose big shadow he's trying to break mm-hmm. free from, and it works really well. Yeah, and it's not only what Peter Parker is going to do, but as you brought up, it's what Mar- the Marvel Universe is yeah, going to exactly. do now. So you've got the double edge there, yes. uh, a couple of layers working. But you're right. Then about halfway through the movie, and, I, and actually I checked my watch; it's almost exactly halfway. Yeah. It makes this pivot. And I was going to bring up what movie it reminded me of, but you told me not to. I did tell you not to. Because that would be too much of a give. Yes. So I'm not going to do it. But it reminded me very much of a pivot that another movie of the last few years makes that totally changes the way you're looking at it. And then it goes into a different direction, and it starts to take on a little more of a dare I say, political theme, at least let's say a socially conscious theme. Yeah. Because from then on, it's all about... What can you believe today? Right. I mean, they make several nods to fake news, yeah. and then things happen that, well, can I people believe, believe in that? People believe what they want to believe. Right, and they're you fooling can, themselves. Yep. Exactly you can fool right. people because they want to be fooled, because yeah. they're fooling themselves. Yeah, and it's, so it's not always subtle, but then again, that kind of works, because remember, we're dealing, we're in the world of a distracted teen, yeah. and distracted teens just starting to learn about social consciousness and things like that. So maybe if it is a little more heavy-handed, a little more direct, I think it works. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think there are a lot of uh, risky choices that this film makes, and on the whole, I think they all pay off.
Yeah. And at that halfway point, then it becomes more fun, and you start to think, okay, then things that I was wondering about in the first half make a little more sense yep, now, yep. and we go, we're off on a whole nother adventure. And, of course, there's lots of great you know, superhero uh, flying around and web shooting. Yeah. And then there's still angst about uh, Peter Parker. Is he going to get up the nerve to tell MJ how he feels? And I don't know. <laughs> um, and, and then he's got the funny business of... Uh, of uh, Aunt, Aunt oh. May and Happy are they and are they are they dating and Peter Parker's what's going on here? That's right. So, you've got a lot of that great vibe from the first one with a little more depth to it here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I yeah I ended up having a, a great time with it. I did. I did. So I think and and uh, I complain about this frequently with superhero movies as the sort of climactic fight sequence wears on. I thought it was too long. Mm-hmm. You know, eventually I'm like looking at my watch. Like, are we not done with this yet? Are we okay? No, no. Okay. We're still fighting. Um, it's not that it wasn't clever. It just, it just, as so often happens in the superhero movies, I just felt like it's, it was about at least five, six, seven minutes too long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It could have been a little, little more leaner, a little more meaner. Yeah. But I will say you cannot shave any minutes off of this one because you know it's Marvel, and you know most of the time, except for Endgame, and that made total sense, Yes, you're dealing with not one, but two extra scenes, yep. a.k.a. stingers. And usually it's been story, substance, the first one, mm-hmm. and then comedy, the second one. Not so this time. Right. So don't expect shawarma. That's what we're saying. <laughs> because, yeah, the first one is is an important and interesting piece of narrative, and mm-hmm. the second one at the very end of the credits is probably a more important piece of narrative. Yeah. Um, the second one makes you rethink everything you just saw yeah. in the movie. Yeah. And you and walk out going... And I've heard people complain about that. Like, if your post-credit scene is the most interesting part of your film, does that mean your film is terrible? No, it's all one film. Yeah. It's actually just a very clever use of the time that you have on screen. Exactly. Remember how great the ending of, um, was it Ant-Man and Wasp? Yeah, uh, that that one, that one was great was. because then Ant Man got stuck yep. while everybody got blipped. Yep. So uh, yeah, this was it, it all works together. But because I think when we saw it, we saw it in a press screening only. Yep. So most everybody in the audience was a critic. Yeah. And one guy that we know, I saw him walk out yeah. before, the, before second the second one. one. I know. And and then, we just wanted to shout for him. Yeah. Like, Do you know which universe we're in? Yeah. You know, you just this is missed. a two post screens. <laughs> you just missed something important. So uh, don't be like that guy. It's a double stinger. Exactly. Double stinger. Make sure you're there for it. But I think you'll have a good time with it, especially if you like the tone, the vibe of Homecoming, which we certainly did, and we enjoyed Spider-Man Far From Home. I just want to add one thing, because Mm -hmm. every time John Watts makes a massive hit movie... Uh, which is twice He's the director here. He's the director. I just... It makes me so happy, because his first film is a horror movie called Clown that I just loved. It's got so much heart and and death. Yeah. A lot of children die. Um, and every time I watch one of these, and I just think, like, good for you! <laughs> Mention of Clown. Well done. As we talk about Far From also, Home. Also, Patrol Car, which is great. Just check out all of his cop movies. Car, cop, no, cop, cop Car, car, car which is Kevin great. Bacon. Yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah, that's kind of a little-known little yeah. gem that the people... One of the, It's almost... Becoming a cult movie. Yeah. You're like, oh, Cop Car, yeah. Yeah, it's so a thing. I mean, this guy, he does, he's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely is. And we enjoyed Far From Home. Whole different type of summer traveling. 
in this next movie. It's a couple traveling to Sweden to visit a rural hometown's fabled midsummer festival. What begins as an idyllic retreat quickly dissolves into an increasingly violent and bizarre competition at the hands of a pagan cult. It's midsummer. I invited Danny to come to Sweden. You know what she's been going through? Christian says you've got this special week planned. It's sort of a crazy festival. Special ceremonies and dressing up. That sounds fun. Unbelievable. Welcome and happy midsummer. Skull! <laughs> what do you think? It's like another world. Tomorrow's a big day. Is it scary? What am I going through? We just need to acclimate. I don't want to acclimate. I want to go. Absolutely not. Yes, the movies this week are trying to make us rethink traveling abroad. How about a staycation? (laughs) (laughs) Especially with this one. Now, this is the latest from writer-director Ari Aster. And if you don't know that name, he did Hereditary for his debut a couple of years ago. A movie that was very polarizing in horror film circles, but a movie that we both love. Yeah, absolutely loved. And we couldn't have been more excited to see uh, that he was going to turn around and do another one so quickly. And as soon as we started seeing the first stills from it, Everything about it. And yes, it has a Wicker Man vibe. It absolutely does. But and that's, that's not a spoiler. No, you know that from the trailer. You do. If you've seen the Wicker Man, especially the first one, the, the original not, Wicker it's Man. It's not a negative. No. 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 Well, the, the, the original. Let's put yes, it that way. the original. The Nicolas Cage remake, not so much. Oh, God, no. No, it's funny that you bring that up because, well, this is probably too nerdy for us, but it's the opposite of the Nicolas Cage uh, remake. Yeah. yeah. Um, in, in theme and in, in, in every way. But you bring up a good point. Right away in our, our written review on MadWolf.com is that two two movies in now Ari Oster has a pattern. He does. Uh, he introduces this tremendous amount of grief, yeah. and then pulls you so far inside it you're going to be thinking about it for days. Yeah, and it's an interesting tack because uh, in most films. And a lot of times it's sort of those mid-budget action movies, right? There's grief. That's what introduces it. A man is madly in love with his idyllic wife and something Mm -hmm. terrible happens and she dies. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the journey is him kind of fighting through grief. But you're never incited ever. Ari Aster is like, screw Uh, that, man. I am not going to let you out. You're going to spend the whole movie trying to claw out of the most oppressive grief you can imagine. You know, yeah, and the, the tragic event that kicks it off is set in a... It really ends up being the film's prologue, yeah. because it's after that event that you see the opening credits and things like that. And it's it's filmed in such a way that it makes the event even more uh, resonant to yeah. you. I mean, he films it in these slow-moving pans and fills it with such detail. You're like, I mean, you know what happened, but it makes it even more, yeah. ugh. Yeah. And it's not that it's very bloody. No. It's just that it's so... Uh, it's so heavy. It weighs so heavy on you. It's grotesque. And then it opens you up for the rest of the movie, which is just barraging you with being uneasy and and disturbed. Not so much out and out scared, but just unsettled. Yes, it's unsettling. And one of the ways he does it is by employing absolute grandeur in the way it's filmed. Everything, so much of it is is these very wide panoramic, just gloriously colorful, outdoor, bright light, 
full of flower scenes. Just beautiful, beautiful mm-hmm. scenes. Broad daylight. One of the things that they, they talk about a lot is that it's like they're like, what time is it? It's 930 at night. It can't be. It's still broad daylight. Right. Is that it's it's such an otherworldly beautiful, and it's outdoor. So so uh, so much of Hereditary was indoor, and then it was also focused on these tiny miniatures. That and our friend Cat referred. said she said there was it was so intense. I thought my veins were going to burst. <laughs> so he does the opposite here. Almost everything is outdoor, and even when it is indoor, it's these massive structures that don't uh-huh. have interior rooms. Uh-huh. Uh, so in, in certain ways, it is um, sort of the the opposite of the tone or or the kind of feeling, the atmosphere, I guess, yeah. of Hereditary. But on the other hand, it kind of isn't <laughs> because as as expansive as the landscape is, it's still incredibly remote. And these people, once they get there, uh, Danny, who's the main uh, the main character, she's played by. Florence Pugh, who you may have just seen in Fighting With My Family. She's extremely, extremely good. She is so good. And she follows her boyfriend, Christian. They're they're, they're kind of at a crossroads in their relationship. And she follows him to Sweden with his college friends. And it's you get the sense that she mainly wants to go to avoid being alone because she's still dealing with this um, amount of grief of this uh, event that happened. And she's very clingy to uh, Christian at first, and she's very needy, and so she, you know, the friends are not happy about her coming along at all. So once they get there, and they're plunged into this different culture, it's very smiley, very happy, very all flowers and sunlight, but, but they're sort of prisoners here. Yeah. And they have to deal with this new culture, and it, it's such a contrast, like you say, in the middle of this beauty and all this sunlight, this really dark, foreboding sense of dread in the intentions of these people. And it's interesting. So so it is expansive and claustrophobic at the same time in the same way that something like The Thing or, yeah. or yeah. the original Wicker Man, yeah. right? Because yeah. they're on this gorgeous island that he cannot leave. No mm-hmm. matter what he tries to do, he, they control the boats going in and out. And he can't yep. leave. So it does. It, it has that same uh, weird juxtaposition of being very, very free and completely in the control uh, of, this con- of the confines. And it's one of those that everything is so deliberate. Look at... Every picture on the wall, even before they get to Sweden, there's some carefully placed pictures in a, in a bar where they sit. And then once they get to Sweden, the artwork, everything in the frame, some of it, it leaves is leaving trail, almost all of it, I should say, is leaving trails of foreshadowing. Oh, yeah. And other ones are just thrown in your face that yeah. just start like, what's that about? Yeah. And then they just make a, a passing reference to it. Oh, okay. And then, so you're just, you're, you're constantly off kilter. Yeah. And, and some of the shots are... Uh, very disorienting the way it's presented. So the whole thing, just like I say, you don't have a guy jumping out with a mask and a and a and a knife, but you are constantly unsettled. One of the things I like about the film too is that at its heart, you know, in a lot of ways, it's just it's just a story about a bad relationship. Yeah. And one of the things that and Jack Rayner plays Christian, mm-hmm. um, and you'd probably recognize him. He's been in a bunch of films. We he looks always, like Seth Rogen's brother. Yeah, hand, <laughs> handsome Seth Rogen is how we how we refer to him. And uh, you know, one of the things I like about the way Ari Aster and Jack Rayner uh, approach this is that you don't outright hate this guy, right? You just don't. He's he's in a relationship that he really wants to get out of. But he just, he's a coward. Mm-hmm. It's what he is. It is very, but he's right. likable enough. But here's the thing. If you just really, and they don't, they don't, like, stab you with this or anything. But given what his girlfriend has just gone through, he actually does plan to leave for three weeks to leave the country without telling her yes. in advance. Yes. She finds out by accident. Mm-hmm. And when you think about that for a second, like, she literally has no one left on earth. Mm. And you're just going to 
go away, leave the country for weeks on end. You're not even going to tell her about that. Yeah. And and what's funny is that the the her response to it is is important. Their relationship and the way that it works, the the sort of dysfunction that they have, you you've guessed over the last several years, kind of developed. Um, it's very authentic. Yeah. And uh, and it really fuels the whole film. It does. And there's another there's another relationship. Um, of secondary characters that comes up once they get to Sweden that also is very effective for me, uh, what happens to those characters. But, yeah, the main group that goes over, she's, in the beginning, she is so uh, just torn apart and so brittle and so clingy, but then the movie, as it goes on, it's about her her strength. Yeah. Her strength, and and like you said, Christian's cowardice. Yeah. Uh, where you think he's strong, but he's not. No, he's not, not at all. all. He's, yeah. a very, he's a very weak person, yeah. and the truth is that even though his complaint... And the complaints of his friends is that this girlfriend is so needy. If you really think about what it is she's living yeah. through, yeah. she the fact that she can move forward at all is astonishing. Exactly. And that's really an important uh, characteristic, her survival instinct, what she does to help herself get through things, which is, uh, yeah, it's, it's a pivotal part of this movie. Yeah, so then it moves through these very unsettling images toward a horrific end, and it's just all about... The, the, the terror is so deep-rooted in the psyche. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if you've seen Hereditary, then it won't be a surprise to you. But that is why I think it, it will be, his work continues to be polarizing for some horror fans. Because for some horror fans, that's not what scares them. Well, it's the thing. It's not really scary. Right. It's disturbing. It's disturbing. And it sticks with you in right. a way that, like, needles at you later. And you're like, oh, my God, why am I still thinking about this? But there are no jump scares. No. And there's a couple scenes. There's where gore. Oh, there's gore and, and yeah, and blood. But... There's no jump scares, and for us, I know for me specifically, this kind of horror is much more effective, yeah. and yeah, so much more long-lasting. So it's yeah. it's very, very unsettling. It is. Yeah. You know what? Before we uh, um, leave the topic entirely, I want to point out that Will Poulter has a small role in this, yeah. and um, and he's great. He's great. And yeah. here's the thing: he's one of the friends. I love Will Poulter. He's, yeah, he's, he's great. Good. Every, the first thing we saw him is we're the Millers, and he's like the goofball teenage boy, <laughs> and he's just hilarious. And then here's an about face: he's the teenage boy in The Revenant, and you're like, wow, that's that's range right and there. Then, and then he came right back, and he did Detroit, which might be his best performance ever. It was searing and perfect. And, and he was, and Jack Rayner was in that, too. Yeah. But Will Poulter was just evil personified in that movie. God, he was so I, he good. Really and Jack des- Rayner was also great in Detroit. He, he deserved a, an Oscar nomination, yes, I think, for that movie. But that movie got forgotten yeah, about. It's because it's so, so tough to watch. And then he but- comes back to this one, and he's... On on one level, he's kind of the comedic comic relief in this movie, but I, I would say he never really stoops to being that. And the right. way that his character is handled by Aster uh, is fascinating to me because the movie, again, it's so visually expansive. There's so much on the screen at one time that depth of field really comes into play. Yeah. What oh, else is happening? Yeah. But for the first time in a movie that I can think of since probably Robert Altman... It's not just visually the depth of field, it's also orally. It's yeah. like, what can you hear people saying that you can't actually see because they're not in yeah. front of the the sort of point of view character? And that's really where Will Poulter's character's dialogue is the funniest. Um, and it helps. It helps to... It, it, it helps to alleviate a little bit of that anxiety and, and get you through from scene to scene. But while the sa- at the same time keeping you still disoriented because it's exactly. out of frame and all these yeah. noises. Yeah. yeah, It's really, like you, like you uh, mentioned a, in the written review, master strokes of hallucinogenic uh, scene yeah. blocking yeah. Uh, or scene staging. It re- really is. Keeps you totally off guard. And also I think it bears at least a mention that his, Will Poulter's, Poulter's character, Mark, he also represented for me 
sort of an undercurrent of America's arrogance yeah. toward other cultures. Yeah. Like, yeah, I'm just going to come in here, and I know this is your country, yeah. but screw you. Yeah, yeah. because the uh, so the, the, the three main guys who are going are all um, getting advanced degrees in anthropology. Mm-hmm. They're and working on thesis yeah, ideas. And so yeah, so they're interested in this very rustic um, community and and just sort of exploring something that, that, as far as they knew, hadn't been explored before. Well, Mark is just somebody's roommate, yeah. and he gets to go, and he's like, can we go to this city and to that city, and will there be hot babes here, you know, right. and he's... He has no idea what he's in for, and then when he realizes he's basically stuck in the middle of nowhere, he's worried about things like ticks. So, yeah, he definitely does represent that. In fact, early on, before they go, when they're planning the trip, uh, things he says about the women he hopes to meet, oh, what a piece of foreshadowing. Oh, Oh, what a piece of foreshadowing. Oh, not only that, but the the, the response uh, that, you know, why are Swedish women so hot? Because the Vikings stole all the good-looking women from the other countries. And and it's so funny, that line... Made my stomach clench. I'm like, oh God, yeah. that's awful. Well, there's lots of stomach clenching yes, moments in this is. movie. If, so, if you can't tell, so we really liked it too. So, two good new ones this week. And before we get to the lobby, we do want to run down, since this is the halfway point of the year, we want to quickly run down our top 10 movies so far this year. Just a quick, a quick hit. So, number 10 for us was Rocket Man, the Elton John biography told in a fantastical way with director Dexter Fletcher and star Taron Egerton. Loved it, loved it, loved it. Obviously, especially if you're an Elton John fan. I think Taron Edgerton might be as charming as Tom Holland. Holland. He's pretty like, charming. They're the two cutest kids <laughs> out there. And number nine is number three in the How to Train Your Dragon series, series. The Hidden World. Just really, really Again, charming and well done with great life lessons, and it really puts a nice bow on what is a fantastic trilogy. Yeah. Really is. Agreed. Uh, Number eight, a very little-known movie called The Souvenir. Extremely personal movie that stars uh, the first starring role for... Tilda Swinton's daughter, Honor Swinton Byrne. Mm-hmm. She's great. She is great, and Tilda Swinton is in it, and she's great as well. Number seven, Little Woods. Now, this is from the director who is going to, her next film will be the reboot of Candyman. Yeah. But I was excited to see this, to see what it was that drew Jordan Peele's attention to this filmmaker who had not made a feature before. And this Little Woods, it's not a horror film by any means. It is an indie drama about basically poverty in the United States, and it is absolutely brilliant. Starring Tessa Thompson, yes. who's always good. Uh, speaking of Jordan Peele, number six on our list of best movies so far this year, his... Follow-up to Get Out, Us. I'm sure you've heard of it. You've probably seen it. We loved it. If not, it's available on VOD by now, so just watch it. Number five is a return to form for, pronounce his name for me, Jimu Yang. Jimu Yang. Uh, Shadow. Oh, my Lord. It's it's just this incredible epic about the, the Three Kingdoms era of China so long ago and a, and a struggle for power. and, and back... Basically, it's his wheelhouse. It is. It is his wheelhouse. And the visuals, I can't even tell you yeah. the visuals. I'm so excited just to talk about it. If you can possibly see it on the big screen, please do. And you will never look at umbrellas the same <laughs> way again. I can promise you that. And then the next three, this is why we've talked about the year so far far has been about documentaries. It has been. Because number four is the documentary Apollo 11. Just as we're going to talk about with another one, this is just living, breathing history. The 50th anniversary this month mm-hmm. of the Apollo 11 and, and walking on the moon and some of the footage and the, the clarity of the footage and how it's assembled. It just It's just breathtaking. It, absolutely. The way it's assembled is specifically without being super manipulative to give you that like tingle. Like, mm-hmm. oh my god, 
it's almost here, it's almost here. Yeah. You know, it is It is a stunning film. So great. Uh, number three, another documentary, Amazing Grace, the finally released, because this footage has been just sitting around for decades, uh, the documentation of Aretha Franklin recording her landmark gospel album live over two nights at a church in uh, Los Angeles in front of a congregation, two congregations, with the help of Reverend James Cleveland's Southern California Choir. And you know, oh, it's, you know, it's it's Aretha at the top of her oh, form. Oh, it's, you know, it'll just it'll it, just slay you. It, I mean, yeah, well, it's a it's a church experience. It's a come to Jesus experience. Exactly. And, and you've got you've got um, this footage that has finally the technology. It's funny. Usually, we're used to technology today making singers out of non-singers. Right. Well, it's technology that has finally allowed us to see this movie, and you get to just, as you said, at the apex of her powers, one of the greatest voices to ever live. Yeah. Just doing it. It's, it's, it's insanely good and quite an experience. And another documentary is at number two on our list so far this year, Peter Jackson's They Shall Not Grow Old. So it's one of those movies that makes the most out of Peter Jackson's really obsessive compulsive disorder because he poured over all of this footage, 100-year-old footage from World War One, and restored it frame by frame by frame. Ugh. And not just did he restore it, he restored it, he added color, and, and he made it 3D. It's absolutely magical. And then he attached to it audio from dozens and dozens and dozens of interviews made 50 years later of soldiers who were at that point in yeah. their 70s, yeah. talking about having served, served in World War One, And the way that he makes, brings what they their commentary in to, to narrate a movie that, of course, is footage that they've never seen, it is a stunning achievement in history. It's a living, breathing history like right. nothing I've ever yeah, seen. Just like we talked about Apollo 11, this is the same thing. You just can't believe. It's almost like you're there. And you talk about it being added color. There's a moment about, what, 10 minutes in or so? when it switches from black and white to color, and it, it'll take your breath away. Oh, it's very, what I imagine it was like the, when people saw The Wizard of Oz the first time. Yeah, so that is number two. And number one so far this year, our favorite movie, uh, I bet you can guess if you listen to this podcast, Toy Story 4. Oh, uh, what can we say? I we know, just, I... just loved it. Here's how bad it is. I found out yesterday that they have Toy Story 4 Legos, and I actually went to Target to buy some. <laughs> who? I don't know who we buy it for. We don't know any We're small children human. anymore. I just know. take our money. I want a Duke Kaboom. <laughs> you. Uh, so Toy Story 4, that's our uh, top of our top 10 for so far this year. So we'll see how the rest of the year shakes out. Uh, okay, you ready for the lobby? I think so. Let's go. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. First up, uh, out on home video, The Best of Enemies, civil rights story about Ann Atwater facing off against C.P. Ellis and how they eventually came to an understanding and came to be lifelong friends. There, there's a lot that's done right about it. It's not perfect. It still makes some of those kind of awkward moments when dealing with these sort of things and homogenizing them yeah. and sanitizing them. But it's got two great performances oh. from, from really, uh, always reliable actors. Uh, um, Sam Rockwell. And Taraji P. Henson. Yep. They are wonderful in this movie. And they, they have great... Sparky, uncomfortable chemistry. Yeah, yeah. So it's not perfect, but it is worth seeing. I think for a, a time in history and a story that uh, is is quite relevant, really any time, but especially now. Also, Ophelia is out this week. When we just talked about last we week, did. I think. Yeah. yeah, we did. A nice idea, pretty well executed. Could have been better, but it's still, especially if you're, especially if you are like a a diehard Shakespeare fan or Hamlet fan, I think definitely worth your worth your time. Yeah, and also out this week, The Public, Emilio Estevez's latest film as a writer-director, Civil Disobedience in the Cincinnati Public Library, a standoff with police and homeless people. 
heart on his sleeve. That's Emilio Estevez it all is. the way. Yes, it, it is. is. So all God, of you know, his films are like that. God bless him right. for his 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 feelings and uh, his his views on things. A lot of which I agree with. Mm-hmm. It's just that his filmmaking tends to be so heavy. Handed. Yeah. And he gets to scenes where it just doesn't know when to stop. Like if you stopped it right here mm-hmm. and then you got to hammer it home a little bit more. And that just seems to be his M.O. So it's it's a good message. It's a well-meaning message. But, oh, man, it hits like a sledgehammer. So uh, kind of comes on a bit too strong for the public. Next week. I next think, week. Let me tell you what. Next yeah. week has the two of us written all over. You have three horror movies and a raunchy comedy. <laughs> exactly. One that I'm strangely interested in. That alligator movie, it's called Crawl. Yeah. There's a hurricane, alligator loose in some guy's basement, I guess. He's <laughs> he's stuck. I, I'm in. I think I'm in. I said it last week. I think I'm in. Also, the Uber comedy, Stuber. I don't know why I'm calling it like, like it's German, Stuber. It's I not, don't it's either. It's just Stuber. It's just Stuber. It's um, Dave Bautista. And Kamel and, Nanjani. Yeah. That so, should be funny. I mean, just those two right there. They're very funny people, so I, I'm excited to see what they can do with I it. I hope so. Also... Looking forward to, finally, the follow-up to one of our favorite horror movies, The Woman. And this one written, no, this one, yeah, starring and directed. Did she write it? She did. Uh, Pollyanna McIntosh, who's the star of The Woman. She picks up the story in a movie called Darlin'. So we'll look for that next week. And another and, horror film called Trespassers. Yeah. So, it's, yeah, it's going to be, uh, you know, at least we'll enjoy watching them all. I don't know <laughs> that we'll love them, but we'll be excited to all see right. them. All right, so we'll see what we'll, we'll think about that next week. In the meantime, boy, two big ones to talk about this week. Let us know what you thought about Spider-Man or Midsummer. That one's really one that invites a lot of discussion. So we'd love to hear you, your views on it. Uh, keep in touch always. The easiest way is on Twitter. We're at Mad Wolf, M-A-D-D-W-O-L-F. You can always find us on Facebook and Instagram as well. It's Mad Wolf Columbus. And the main website with all the written reviews and our other horror movie-only podcast called Fright Club, easily found at madwolf.com. Always appreciate you listening to The Screening Room. And wherever you are listening, wherever you get your podcast, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review. Thank you so much for that. So until next week, she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And this is The Screening Room Podcast. See ya. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye.